UEG Talks, Gastroenterology to Go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the UEG Talks. Welcome to part two of this episode on IBD therapies beyond the anti-TNFs. I'm joined by my guest, Dr. Ignacio Catalan. I've already introduced him in my previous episode. Welcome to the show, Ignacio. Hi, very happy to be here again, talking about this interesting topic. And let's go. So, Nacho, you previously just briefly mentioned about precision medicine. And I guess uh, for the benefit of us and others who don't understand this, so you're trying to say you see the phenotype or genotype or receptors and things, and then just like the cancer treatments, right, where, you know, cancer drugs, they look at various things and then kind of tailor their medications accordingly. Is that what you're talking about when you talk about precision IBD medicine? And if that's the case, are we there yet? And how long do you think we'll be in that phase? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think the problem of precision medicine is that it hasn't delivered as much as we we were expecting 10 years ago. So if you look at the amount of evidence and data that is published on precision medicine and how much this has permeated in everyday clinical practices, it's not much. So that has been a little bit disappointment. And I, I usually say in my talks, a, a semi-joke of, of Jean-Fred Colombel saying that precision medicine is, the, is like the Loch Ness monster, that everybody talks about it, but nobody has seen it, right? So you're going to hear a lot about precision medicine. And my, my research group is based on precision medicine. What, what do we mean by that? One subtle thing that, to, that is important to, to think about is we do personalized medicine already. Right. So personalized medicine is more of is a brighter concept. And what it means is that you try to use the best drug for every patient. So we do that already. Just to give an example, patients with bad prognosis clinically, you don't need to you go to any omics or check the microbiome or anything. You, you want to see the patients in your practice. A patient comes with a bad colitis. What's a bad colitis? A pancolitis with deep ulcerations, with myo 3 you need a lot of steroids to put it. This patient's going to go bad. We are already treating them with top-down. So would you want to use good drugs? In my case, I try to use combo therapy in the beginning in these cases. So this is something you are already doing. Same for Crohn's. You have a young patient, a smoker, perianal disease, extensive small bowel. You're going to treat them with the, with the big guns from the beginning because you have this, this window of opportunity. You're risking damage. So that's, there's no question about that. So we are already doing personalized medicine, but precision medicine came from this idea of using molecular information. So using these new technologies that we can put together with the clinical data and then come with better clinical decisions. We're talking about checking the microbiome, the immune response, metabolomics, proteomics, all these omics. And we've, we've heard a lot about that. The problem we have now is that many of these studies are not validated. This is still very expensive. It's very expensive to check, uh, I don't know, the immune profiling and the metabolomics and the genomics, and right? So, so it's, it's still difficult to put together. So the hope of this system biology approach is that we can, in the future, use, for example, AI, artificial intelligence, or some tools that we can put a lot of information together of a patient, not only this clinical a prognosis science, but also all this additional information or some parts of it 
Does the patient has a lot of proteobacteria, these uh, viral microbiome markers, or this mucosal? You take a biopsy and then you measure things in the mucosa, and that tells you if the patient is going to have a good response to one or the other drug or IL-22, things like that. The idea is to add information with these omics and put them together with clinical information to make better decisions. Unfortunately, we are not close to that. The, the idea is that I think we, we are abandoning the idea of that we are going to be able to predict from the beginning, so ex ante. So before we treat a patient, this is not happening for now. But it might be very useful in patients, for example, that, for example, lose response to anti-TNF or you, or you use, a, for example, let's say that you use a JAK inhibitor in the future as a first line, and then you see how biology changes, then you might choose the next step. So it's still useful. I think we're going to be using it, and it's obvious that it's going to, it's going to work. The only problem is we don't know how to do it in a smart, cost-effective way. That, that it's way above what we already have. They're having some good attempts, with, especially with AI, putting things together and then going with a, an algorithm that gives, you, that gives you a percentage of, okay, this patient is going to lose response to anti-TNA, for example, and then you want to use azathioprine, right? Like you want to use common instead of mono. Things like that are, are already there and they, and they might permeate. But, uh, but yeah, we, we, we still have to work a lot on it. Excellent. I'm glad the IBD research world is looking into, into all these things to make uh, our patients' lives better. Uh, Nacho, moving on to, I guess this is again a very broad topic. So let's say you're talking about patients who don't respond to anti-TNFs or have lost response. And let's say there are no special circumstances. There's no risk of thromboembolism. They're not elderly. There are no comorbidities. And there's no autoimmune diseases, there's no rheumatological or dermatological disease, they're not pregnant. Is there an order in which you use these drugs? Is there a ranking for these drugs in the context of UC and in the context of Crohn's? Or do you, do you have any sort of personal favorites that you use? Let's say, again, you know, take out the variable of cost. You know, you don't have any of these restrictions, any of these special scenarios. Is there a ranking for these drugs in each category? Yeah, I mean, what you are asking is the one million dollar or euro question, right? So that's the that's the question, and you are going to hear people talking about positioning therapies and a lot of papers. And there's no there's no IBD conference where you don't get a couple of these talks, and people try to tell you what the pros and cons, and 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 what to use with what you have. So it's difficult to say. One thing that I think it's important it's the definition of loss of response, and I want to to highlight that for, especially for non-ibidiologists, is this idea of when your patient loses response to anti-TNF, first check that it's a real loss of response. I mean, that it's the anti-TNF that stopped working. So you have to rule out infections. You have to rule out C. diff. You have to rule out CMB reactivation. You have to rule out complications like stenosis, abscess, bacterial overgrowth, I, I don't know, IBS symptoms, bile acid malabsorption, for example, especially in Crohn's patients that have been resected in the allium. So, so think about, think about is it really a loss of response and I have to do something with my anti-TNF or is this something else happening? I think that is a very important thing. If you're talking about switching class, I mean, if you, you, are, you are using, um, let's say, infliximab in monotherapy, the patient responded and loses response and we know that happens 
quite often, like 10% a year, right? So, and suddenly the patient is not doing well, calprotecting up, uh, bowel movements go go up, and and then you want to see, okay, usually if you have the chance, you want to you want to check for draft levels and antibodies, right? So in many places in Europe, that's the case. Not everywhere outside Europe, for sure. So you want to you wanna check if, especially if the patients have normal trough levels, so the drug is in place and he has no antibodies, that means that your drug is not working. So it's not that you'd have low levels because the antibodies are preventing it to work, right? So then you want to switch out of class, we call it. So you want to change from anti-TNF to something else. And that is where all these drugs that we've been talking about come to place. There are, there are two big problems to make decisions here in, in IBD. One is the lack of head-to-head trials. The study that you want to have is, for example, you have an ulcerative colitis patient that has been on infliximab for a while. They, they're not doing well. Okay, it's a loss of response. So you, you want to have a study that has three arms. One, for example, with bedolizumab as a rescue, one with ustekinumab, one with tofacitinib, let's say, and then compare. So that's the study you want to have. But you don't have that. So whenever your patient loses response, then you have to start checking patient characteristics, phenotype, pregnancy desire, extraintestinal manifestations, cardiovascular factors, Crohn's or colitis. Because as we said, if you have colitis, you have more options. If you have Crohn's, your options are more limited. So, so these are everything that you have to put together, including obviously patient preference. I think that is something that has been increasingly an important issue. Do the patients want an oral, subcutaneous, or IV medicine? You want a drug that works fast. If if you want something to work fast, probably, for example, JAK inhibitors are 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 a good option. If you have a lot of extraintestinal manifestations, eventually, for example, these P19s or anti-TNFs are good options. So this is this is the problem we have. And also the guidelines are not going to help you there. Because we, we are working on new guidelines on Crohn's, for example, in, in ECHO, that they will be out, uh, I think, next year. They are not going to help you with this positioning because all in terms of the evidence, all of them work. So you are still going to have to rely on expertise and you're still going to have to use your brain. You're going to have to use to see the entire situation, the patient, the drug, the access you have in your country, how much it's going to cost, what's available for you and then try to make the best possible decision. So, so unfortunately, that is still the case. The feeling is that probably, and if you look at network meta-analysis, which is an indirect way of comparing therapies that haven't been compared head-to-head, we know that probably JAK inhibitors and this new P19 are going to be very important in these patients that's low response because they work very well in these patients. So that is something we know, but uh, more than that, you still have to make your own decisions and nobody's going to tell you 100% this is correct or not, unfortunately. Okay. I was looking for a simple chart, but uh, it looks like it's uh, pretty impossible. More of a reason I need to pass on my IBD patients to my uh, my uh, IBD specialist colleagues. Anyway, now you're moving on, sort of now trying to go back to the basics. I mean, going back to 5-ASAs and thiopurines, are there any key points that you want to highlight in the use of these medications to our listeners? And I guess maybe uh, something you've come across and maybe you can reflect on some common mistakes that you come across in the use of these drugs in routine practice. 
or maybe there's some new data in this day and age uh, in terms of optimization of existing drugs. Uh, so what's your comment on that sort of you know, key kind of tips and tricks in using these things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one key issue here is you want to treat patients the best you can from the beginning. So you don't want to miss any opportunity in Crohn's or, or in colitis, right? So because IBD is not a thing of one year. So this is a long run. The patient is going to have to live with IBD for 30 or 40 or 50 years. So, so you want to use everything you have as wise as possible, even more in, in, in places where cost is an issue, right? So for example, with, with 5SA, the, the classical mistake is not to add topic, so rectal medication to the, to the flares. That's super important. And not only a diagnosis, but every time patients flare, we get all, often this question, how long do I have to use the suppositories or the, or the enemas on? As long as you can, as long as you can, because you're not going to get any side effects of that. Besides that, it's uncomfortable to do it every night and put that in your But if you tolerate it, you can live with that and you get used to that, use it as long as you can. The other thing is try to use high doses in induction. We still see people undertreated for example, in colitis with two grams of mesalazine, try to use four plus grams in the beginning and think about, for example, sulfasalazine is still a first and a good option if patients have arthritis. So this is still, this is still something that you have to think about and, and it's, not, it's not something. And we have been talking a lot lately about azathioprine again, because if, if you think about azathioprine, it's a small molecule. Right? It's an old small molecule and it's a very useful drug, not only in combination to prevent antibodies, that's for sure, but in monotherapy. So it keeps patients in remission. It's a very effective drug, but of course, some patients don't tolerate it. So some things you can do to, to improve that, I mean, or common mistakes. I think you have to explain patients that they might have side effects and the nausea and this, this dyspepsia. If you don't explain and you give 150 milligrams of Imurel and they come back, they, they get the surprise, they don't tolerate it. It's very important to talk about it. Many of us, not then, everybody, we, we start with low doses, for example, 50, and then C-tolerance, and then you go up independently of, of TPMT. You, you have to remember that if you start azathioprine, you have to add something because azathioprine works very slow. You need four to six weeks. So you start azathioprine and, for example, steroids, right? Because you need to cover that window where, where azathioprine is not in place. We see sometimes that kind of mistakes. And a couple of practical tips that I think are important. Many patients that have these gastrointestinal issues with azathioprine can be rescued if you switch to mercaptiburin. So that is something we don't do. Many, many times, oh, I have, I have nauseas and I've been vomiting and, and I have this stomach pain. Okay, then, then okay, isothioprine is not working. It's not tolerated. It's very easy to give it a try if the patient is okay with that because you might rescue it. The literature is very clear on that and I think we, we don't use it enough. And the other thing is the, the use of allopurinol that can rescue some patients with, with hepatotoxicity. It's very cheap. It's relatively safe, especially if you can measure levels. So, so this is very important because I think we are stepping too quickly into advanced therapies, like you said, and then you lose response and suddenly you have been using three or four biologics. The patient's not doing well. And when you go back in time, you see that you see that, that patient has not be, been treated well from the beginning and you might have prevented this, this spiral of, of biologics and side effects and all that. Yeah, I guess the, the field these days is so overcrowded and so easy to get access to these these advanced therapies that uh, people are just not focusing on the basic therapy. And thanks for highlighting that. 
Yeah, I mean, so if you think about it, especially for young, young, young specialists, they, they are not going to hear about uh, a lot about azathioprine or or about these drugs, or they will not hear much about methotrexate or, or flagell. You know, it's important that they know because these are cheap drugs with a lot of experience and they have side effects for sure. But I, I don't think we should abandon them at all. And there's a lot of pressure because when, when these young colleagues go to ECHO or to UEG or any of these conferences, they, they hear a lot of these new, these new drugs and, and, and not much of these orphan, cheap drugs that we've been using for a long time. So I think, I think it's important that they get information on that. Lovely, Nacho. To conclude, I was wondering, Crohn's is a progressive disease. And I guess the disease complications can be prevented in the long run with, with administering effective therapy earlier on. And more and more, we know that most of these therapies are safe to use. In your practice as a clinician, would you rather over-treat a few patients to avoid under-treating a majority of your patients? What's your approach? We all have different thresholds, right? You know, some of us have a high threshold to treatment. Some of us start treatment even with very minor inflammation, minor things. So where do you stand or where, where do you think we should stand on this? Yeah, I mean... I think that the main difficulty here is the heterogeneity of the disease. I mean, the moment we put in the same basket of IBD a patient with proctitis and you compare it with a patient with small bowel stenosis and Crohn's, then you are, it's impossible that you can find it. I mean, that IBD is something that we used to understand each other, but there are going to be at least five or six types of IBD soon with molecular classification. So I think that is, that is the problem. We are treating different beasts with the same thing. And, and that makes it that makes it complicated. So where I stand now is I try to look at the whole situation. And I think there's an important thing in medicine is this classical primum non nocere, right? So the first thing you have to think is don't harm. Don't harm is first. So I'm not much for the over-treatment part, right? So, so this is something you have to be extra cautious for the over-treatment, in my opinion. But you know that there are some patients that progress very quickly and that already come with this, we talked about some of these bad prognosis signs. And these patients, you have to act very aggressively. For example, a patient with perianal Crohn's, you cannot mess around with that because the patient is risking a lot of quality of life, sexual life and problems, right? So in that, that patient, I have no hesitation and I'm going to start them with the best thing we have, which is a combination of infliximab and esothiabrine, for example. No question. I'm not going to start with monotherapy of infliximab. I'm not going to try anything new unless they show me the data. So I'm not going to give azathioprine. So, so you have the more of these bad prognosis signs, young people, smokers, uh, pancolitis, deep ulcerations, extensive disease, the more of those you have, you wanna, you're going to start with what we used to call top-down. So you want to start with anti-TNFs or advanced therapies quickly. And for now, as I told you, Sonic, so infliximab and, and azathioprine is a still top. So, so for now, if you have to use, you have a very severe patient, you have to use one thing, use combination, if the patient tolerate that. If we are lucky, and the other, the other difficulties, for example, in Crohn's, we know that some patients have a very mild prognosis. So there's like a third of Crohn's patients that have a couple of ulcerations in the ileum, you might get in, you might give them some entocorp, for example, as a budesonide, and they might not come back. Or we know it from the predict studies from these early surgery studies that you operate 
early on and, and you make a ileocecal resection uh, of a short segment of the bowel and the Crohn's doesn't come back. We've seen 50% of patients in the Danish court don't use any medications five years after the operations. What that is telling you is the, if you start with advanced therapies in these patients, you are over-treating them. They don't need that. They might need surgery in the first place or, or they might need a milder, more, more like quick step up approach. So again, what we need is better, better markers. We need better biomarkers and we need, we need precision medicine. That is exactly why we need it because we need to avoid over-treatment and, and we, want to, we want to choose our weapons. So we, you don't want to give side effects to a, a person that doesn't need the drug and you don't want to wait too long in a person that is going to progress very quickly. So that, there, are many, there are many things on the way. And I mean, the, the hope is that these new technologies, AI, machine learning and all that are going to help us with that. But since then, you have to use your, your clinical instinct your expertise and, 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 you know, read and be updated and try to do your best to choose the best drugs. But it's, it's of course, is the negotiation of effectiveness and safety. We don't have the perfect drug that is very effective and very safe, unfortunately, yet. Okay. And I'm sure that probably brings us to the conclusion of this discussion. Thanks for your time and effort to talk to me today. I think the conclusion is that it's it's extremely complex and it's probably becoming more, more and more complex with the new drugs. Any final thoughts, any final pointers to our listeners before we conclude? No, I'm, 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 I'm very happy that we talked about it. I, I think uh, that it's, yeah, it's getting complicated, but uh, in a way it's challenging that we, we still have to, to use our brains before, before other artificial brains come around. So let's, let, let's work on that. We have to talk about it, have better studies and probably try to, try to get good real world data in studies that are not pharma sponsored, right? So that we can, that we can answer the clinical questions that we want to, to answer and keep on and keep on working on it. And I think that's the beauty of IBD. It's a bit, it's, it's complicated, but it's beautiful because we can impact uh, people's lives in a, in a, in a very important way. So I think that's a little bit of, of the beauty of it. And, and only to thank you for the, thank you for the invitation and, and yeah, and ask people to reach out for me and I have no problem. And I will be happy to, to answer or, or get in touch with people if they want to and, and keep on discussing and learning because it's also the same process for us, for uh, people with IBD. It's uh, we have to keep on learning and discussing and, and trying to, to be as clear as possible to, to make good decisions. Excellent. Thanks for joining us and have a lovely new year. Thank you, Pradeep.